is the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. And a very good afternoon. Welcome to the show. Coming up after a couple of good markets, have livestock prices turned the corner up from the doldrums? And also we head out to Lightning Ridge where the town centre has been inundated with significant rainfall and one pastoral property nearby. The dams are now full for the first time in 12 years. Yeah, no, the dams are full. The uh, the main road in front of our place is washed away. I'm actually stuck in town. Um, yeah, the dams are full. There's going to be grass galore in the coming weeks. And um, just send your thoughts and prayers to my husband and my other little boy who are stuck at home without Starlink. More on that uh, story shortly, and we'll also look at uh, the uh, water buyback as well. Some details of a tender have been released, and uh, there's been some reaction to that from irrigators as well. So uh, more on that story coming up as well. But first up, let's look at that issue of livestock prices, because there's been uh, a decent turnaround in livestock prices on the East Coast, with far- some farmers saying that they've doubled their money in a pretty short space of time. The Eastern Young Cattle Indicator is up around to, 650 cents a kilogram still well below the record set in 2022 but 300 cents higher than it was just a couple of months ago emily doke was at the wagga cattle sale yesterday there were 4,600 head of cattle yarded at wagga wagga yesterday up by 200 after a hot dry week and as producers move to take advantage of the rising trend in prices Overlooking the selling ring, agent Isaac Hill from Wagga Regional Livestock says there was strong competition amongst buyers. There's a supply issue north of us. Uh, Typically where that cyclone has gone through Queensland has probably restricted a few export cattle. So then they've had a few of those northern buyers have come further south. The feedlots are back in a full action since Christmas, trying to refill feedlots, which they've had a trouble doing to, to this point. So prices are up. What about the condition of the cattle that you're coming through? They look to be in pretty good nick after some good summer rain in this part of the world. Yeah, definitely. So most of the cattle that we're seeing here have had feed now for 12 months. We haven't really had a dry spell. We had a dry September, but there has been no feed lacking all the way through. So most cattle here, their average weight for... January would be 100 kilos heavier than where we were probably in previous Januaries. And that's just on back-to-back pretty handy seasons. So we're seeing plenty of weight come through at the moment. How significant is it, do you think, to see this rising trend in the market over the past few weeks? I think it's significant. Um, we're not sure whether it's going to be long-lived or, or a relative short time. But what, we've come from such a very low base. It, from all reports and everyone you talk to, the market got over-corrected last year and and we ended up being too cheap so we're probably seeing a spin-off from that that makes this look like a dramatic rise this could be the new norm but but all we know is that it's a lot better now than where we were for pretty much the whole of last year the national livestock reporting service says feeder cattle were up by 15 to 25 cents a kilo in wonky yesterday and heavy export cattle were up to 30 cents dearer it certainly put a smile on the face of producers uh cameron french from Tumut. Trading cattle is my number one game, yeah. Yeah, so I've, I've, got, I've got cattle here today. I can see the market's been strong over the last couple of weeks and I'm just going to, yeah, going to capitalise on the high prices. Um, me and my partner um, bought cattle back in sort of 
you know, September, October when the price was really low. And, um, yeah, we've just watched it gain in price um, over the last, you know, couple of months. And we had lots of feed, you know, end of spring. And um, we also a couple of crops up in Tumut. Yeah, we've really capitalised and, you know, over doubled our money. So it's Andrew Forsyth from up at Humula, Southwest Slopes, New South Wales. Tell me, uh, how did your cattle go? Uh, Favourable, yeah. Much, much improved turnaround from pre-Christmas. And it's a lift in our emotions now. We're more confident. We can see light ahead. So you've been sitting in there in the, the selling ring looking at what's coming through. What's your assessment of the quality of the stock of this yarding overall? Very favourable. Like they're all forwards to go. They're all fat and it's nice to see some animals that I didn't think would be in this state at this time of the year. It's Gary Armstrong. I'm from Mara. Uh, I've got some cattle and polled off sheep stud. And uh, what are you doing here at the sale yard today? Buying, selling, just looking? Uh, selling today. We've got uh, 20 cattle in again, 10 steers and uh, 10 heifers. The last couple of weeks it's been getting a little bit dearer each week, so hopefully the tail will be the same. Uh, Steve Condell, I'm a livestock agent with Nutrient Wagga. I'm just uh, a downside 20k's north here of Wagga. Nothing brings out numbers like good prices and after the lows that we saw in the last three or four months that um, people now can see light at the end of the tunnel and say, well, I can get a return on my cattle now. And, and it's a sustainable price. We're making money. People, producers are making money at this rate. And if it stayed around here or grew a little bit, nobody complained. Uh, yeah, a lot of people who toughed it out are being rewarded now with uh, getting a, a good price for their cattle, sustainable price for their cattle. And um, that's what it's about. You've got to ride the highs and lows out here. And we, we're on our way towards getting a bit more of a high. Not as good as it was previously, but that was, that was extremely high. But this is a pretty sustainable market. Steve Condell ending that report from Emily Doak. So rain, grass, feedlot demand and strong export markets, they're all contributing to a big turnaround of livestock prices. A big sell-off and slump in prices of cattle and sheep as the producers flooded livestock markets at the end of last year when the El Nino weather turned hot and dry. That's given way to a 50% rise in some markets. Matt Dalgleish, director of episode3.net, says he doesn't think we'll see the eye-watering young cattle prices that uh, set the record in January of 22 of over 1,100 cents a kilogram. He doesn't think we'll see that again anytime soon, but the sentiment does seem to have turned. Yeah, absolutely. I think we started to see, I mean, the, obviously the, the troughs in cattle and sheep markets were towards the last quarter of last year when we were down at those very you know, extreme lows. I think for, for lambs it was around September and I think for cattle it was October we saw the lows in the market. We did start to see a bit of an increase in pricing, like you said, through December before the Christmas New Year break, which kind of you know indicated we might be in for a good solid start. And since the open in January, by about mid-January, I think we've seen cattle prices, so the heavy steers, up about 45% from the lows of the previous year. And... Um, the lamb sides even had a really strong turnaround. I think they're up about 85% from, from that low soar in September. So, um, yeah, really strong result for the, for the lamb side particularly. And is it sort of grass and rain driven or something else? Yeah, look, that's certainly helped. Um, the, that's, the, the, the rainfall has given confidence back into the market. I think, you know, in the lead up to the end of the year or, or, or coming towards that final quarter of last year, there was a pretty dire uh, bureau forecast for, for coming into summer and, and certainly on the east coast it looked pretty pretty bad scenario and that didn't well it was hot it. wasn't it it was hot and dry in november it was yeah it was it was and it was looking pretty bad there and obviously we had those tropical events that pushed a lot of rain 
through. We've had two now. The second one just come through recently up at the top end there. So, you know, that's kind of allowed for, um, you know, rain. And in some areas, maybe too much rain, really. But, you know, that's that's been enough to bring that confidence back into the market. So, you know, we did see at the start of 2024, we had those weaner sales in the south. And that was heavily uh, attended by buyers in northern New South Wales and in southern Queensland um, looking for some good quality weaner cattle to bring back. So that, that kind of started the ball rolling. And, and then once the, the normal sale yards have opened up through the middle of January, that's kind of continued on with that confidence and the price recovery has been really you know, solid. There's also talk that the feedlot is a particularly, accurate, uh, particularly active and um, you're there outbidding everyone and um, uh, because they can't, uh, maybe not, can't source it from Queensland where they normally do? Yeah, that's right. They've, they've kind of returned, I think, with the, with the recovery and that heavy steer, um, that's kind of, and, and a little bit of softening in, in feed grain pricing, not, not, a, not an extreme softening, but a little bit of a softening has seen, I think, their margins improve a bit. So that's given them a bit of a boost too. And what about in terms of processing? Because we've heard about, you know, exports could be impacted by the shipping and the Red Sea issue. But uh, that's, you know, there's demand still there. They're still buying too at the sale yards. Yeah, exports have been quite strong um, towards the end of last year. We had the strongest uh, annual level on record for mutton exports and for lamb exports out of Australia. And the beef exports have been like slowly ticking along. So the last quarter we had a really strong increase of demand, particularly out of the US. And it looks like Japan might have turned the corner as well. It might be early days yet, but the Japanese market was very soft in 2023. They had high volumes of beef in cold store to work through, but it looks like they may have turned the corner there too. And um, yeah, so that's that's kind of been a positive. And of course, China has been another strong market, both for sheep meat and, and, and increasingly um, focused again towards beef now with some of that um, trade tensions starting to, to dissipate. You know, what we saw um, the last few years when we had abattoirs, export abattoirs that had lost their access. Some of those have gained their access back. So that's making China uh, show a little bit of a resurgence in demand as well. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, and uh, they've been a big buyer continually all the way through, but that just might tick it up again. And, and the Japanese in the past, I mean, they were like uh, number two or number three on the list in terms of our top buyers. Uh, yeah, for beef, they've actually been number one for a couple of years. And just last year, we saw about August, I think it was, we saw the US um, supersede uh, Japan for that number one spot. And then there was a bit of a tussle between Japan and China for second place. Um, through the end of last year, and and just just to that last little bit of December, the Japanese um, increase in demand there just was enough to get them over the line. So they 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 just took the mantle of second place of China by 0.1 of a percent in terms of market share. So it was a, a very tight race for second place. Mm, I mean, I guess the thing is that they're all competing too in terms of. I mean, that's got to be a good thing for price for our livestock producers. Absolutely, and we, and look, part of the reason too, Michael, is that we had some quite low pricing when we were down at those troughs yeah. last year. And compared to the international price, particularly when you compared our beef pricing to the American price, because the American uh, market was going through their fourth year of herd liquidation. So their pricing for cattle had gone to record high levels and ours at the time was at, you know, in the doldrums. So the spread or the difference in price between our, our, our beef cattle here and American beef cattle was at the widest it's ever been. Um, indicating that we were very competitive and, and that's part of the turnaround in that US market and, and certainly part of the turnaround in places like Japan, China, South Korea because in those other three markets, those Asian markets, the, the, our biggest competitor is pretty much the US. So with the US um, you know, tight with supply and, and, and very uncompetitive pricing, it, 
it puts the focus back on the Australian beef producer. Tightness of supply and seasonal conditions aren't great, so you know the the uh, flow through uh, isn't it, it can't keep up with that sort of demand that they have been uh, you know pushing so up until now from the, out of the US. Yeah, that's right. It's it's one of those scenarios where you know whether you're it has to stop somewhere, doesn't it? It does. That's right. But if you, I mean, at the moment, if you're a sheep meat or, or a beef producer, um, the export markets are in really good shape either way. So you know, it bodes well for, for 2024. And I don't think we're going to see a return to those super high pricing levels we saw, um, you know, earlier into last year and, and into 2022. Um, I think you know we might be in for a more moderate price season. Um, and that'll mean that we'll probably stay fairly competitive as well in those export markets. And with the shipping issues, we're talk- what we're talking about, where we're shipping there, we, we don't none of that goes through the Red Sea. It's out into Asia, Southeast Asia, and into the US. So we, yeah, we avoid that bottleneck. That's right. The only issue there on the shipping side is obviously at the port with that DP group that are having issues with labour at the moment. Um, that, that's probably a bit of a hold-up. So it would be nice to see that resolved because that is adding a few, you know, a bit of an extra delay to some of those um, containers going out to, through the Pacific. Um, you know, that, that's probably the only hurdle at the moment from a, from a logistical or a cold, a cold store supply chain is just making sure that, um, that that industrial dispute can get resolved fairly quickly, hopefully. And what's the next hurdle? The next hurdle would be the, the break in the season, the autumn break. Yeah, that's what I think from a producer side. I think that's what you know we're looking now at is to see what is the forecast as we head into autumn. You know, obviously, you know, at the back end of, of summer, we're probably going to see a bit of a return to a dry spell, but I think there's been enough rainfall and soil moisture to carry us through the summer. So um, the next thing will be, are we going to go into a reasonably normal rainfall pattern for autumn and winter into the south? And if that's the case, then I think you know, we're going to continue to see that confidence hold in the markets. Matt Dalgleish is director of episode3.net on the country hour 19 past 12. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. Emergency crews on alert. Flash flooding amid heavy rain in southeast Queensland as the wet summer rolls on. Teacher shortages as students start the new school year. Governments urge to step up recruitment efforts. And livestock prices bounce back after fears of drought. But are large stockpiles of frozen beef in China creating a glut in the export market? Those stories are much more coming up this lunchtime on The World Today. And on the Country Hour, more details are emerging about the Commonwealth Government's recent tender to buy water entitlements from willing sellers in six catchments in the Murray-Darling Basin. The Government had wanted to buy 44.3 megalitres of water to complete part of its Murray-Darling Basin plan's Bridging the Gap target. As Emily Doak reports, details of 33 tenders have been published on the Government's Austender website. There's no details about the amount of water that's been purchased or the price per megalitre. But based on the seller's address, 11 contracts worth more than $27 million are in the Namoy Valley and there's seven in the Lachlan for more than $6.3 million. There's eight contracts with buyers in the New South Wales Murray system worth more than $6.5 million, one in the Border Rivers worth $10,000 and another $15.6 million in contracts are with sellers who have city-based addresses. Water broker Tom Rooney isn't surprised that most of the water appears to have come from the north. There was only a small water recovery actually in 
the Murray Valley, uh, and the Murray Valley was focused only in New South Wales. By my memory, it was about 10,000 megalitres that they were looking at recovering in that Murray Valley area. The, the, uh, and the, most of the other targets they were looking at recovering were from the Lachlan up. Uh, up uh, so they, that is consistent. Uh, the, the sort of reporting that uh, is occurring at the moment and if you can deduce the, uh, the potential area in which the water's being contracted in by the postcode, that is consistent with the objectives of government and it's not, we're not surprised uh, to see those types of results. And Tom Rooney, you've been in the water market trade for a long time as a broker. As you said, you've seen these sort of buybacks in the past. We know this is the first of uh, a new round of buybacks. There are more to come. What sort of appetite do you think there is amongst irrigators across the Murray-Darling Basin to be participating in in selling their water to the government? Look, I think that um, we saw the Minister making particular statements around the closure of this uh, tender round, is that they were overwhelmed with responses in relation to this round. I think the first initial buyback rounds, we're probably going to be expecting you know, high levels of interest from some groups that are to sell water to the government in certain valleys. I'm expecting the government won't need to actually recover all their water through buyback, the, which, which could be as high as 1,000 a, a gigalitres or a million megalitres of water or 10 10-odd percent of the water in the Murray-Darling Basin, um, I think there will be a suite of programs that we'll see issued out between now and 2007 when the Basin Plan is due to come at an end. So just the, the quantity of water that needs to be purchased will be a result of the success or otherwise of some of those other water recovery projects. And you mentioned certain valleys as being, um, you know, potentially having a lot of interest are you able to tell us or share which ones you think will be most interested in that? I think really the the interest for participation in the Commonwealth will be expecting to see over the next three or four years will be strongly related to the success or otherwise of those underlying commodities which are grown in those valleys. And if those commodities are experiencing hardship, I'm expecting to see uh, greater interest from those growers that are growing those types of commodities around participating in the Commonwealth. So, for example, with a wine glut at the moment, grape growers could be potentially looking for opportunities there. Yes, that's a good example. So where you've got, uh, for instance, actually devaluations which have occurred in uh, water values in some of those areas as a result of people trying to sell their water in in the private temporary market. And I think for some of those people, it will provide them with opportunities to spread their the extent of their potential sell order in the market to a Commonwealth buyback. Um, and I think it will bring additional demand into those markets um, in that area. And I think the, the sellers will be probably will find that we'll get more interest from sellers in those areas, such as as you've given an example in the south. So strongly where there's a wine glut in, we're expecting to see stronger demand in those areas compared to, say, commodities that might be 
are stronger at the moment, such as dairy. Tom Rooney from Waterfine speaking there to Emily Doak. So 33 tenders being published on a government website to buy 44.3 megalitres of water to complete part of the Murray-Darling Basin plan's bridging the gap target. Now, in regards to the latest tender information being published, we're joined now by New South Wales Irrigators uh, Claire Miller. Uh, Miller, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. So uh, reaction from the members and from irrigators in regards to this information that's just been published? Look, um, our concern about this information being published is we understand the government thinks it's being transparent and you know, perhaps legally they do have to publish the names and amounts paid on government contracts. But the government's only chosen to publish the most damaging information that could. It's named names and it's named locations of those people. And we have a real issue with that because many of their neighbours, many um, of the people in those towns where they live, they'll perceive that these farmers are selling out their communities and it's just going to create further angst and division in already deeply distressed communities across the basin who are deeply worried about their future under this government's damaging new Murray-Darling Basin plan. And the thing is, the government's chosen to publish information that will cause communities to turn in on themselves and turn against each other. And it hasn't actually published the information that's most important for taxpayers, the information that actually matters. And that is, what were the dollars per megalitre that they paid? What was the total megalitres that they bought? What was the type of entitlement that was purchased? Which value is it in? And this is what taxpayers and the Australian public actually need to know. That way we understand whether the government is paying above market rates and therefore distorting the market. And it also helps us to understand that the types of entitlements that they're purchasing will actually help the environment and are not just going to water. The other issue, though, is that maybe they had a legal, you know, the tender, they might have had, uh, you know, legally, they might have been uh, forced to publish that information. I, I don't know legally whether or not they, they were or not. Well, as I say, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt here. Maybe they legally felt they had to publish that information and that is the bare minimum that they had to publish. But the fact is, they've put out there the most damaging information that will cause the greatest angst and division in already distressed communities across the basin, worried and, about And some future. of those, as you say, some of those communities are quite small, you know, with only a few hundred people that live in, the, in that town and individuals named. Oh, absolutely. They will know exactly who those people are when they, you know, those people will be in the pub, their kids will be at the local school, they, you know, wives and husbands meet other people in the supermarket. As I say, it's about as damaging as you can do to those communities and to those individuals for that matter. Um, you know, we have a position and it's well known that we oppose the government buying back more water from farmers. We don't think that it's necessary to deliver what the basin plan needs. Farmers already have a market where they can sell their water to other farmers. That keeps that water in production, supporting jobs and communities. Now, but we're not in the business of telling individuals what they should do with their water either. Um, and it concerns us though very much here that the government is publishing the names of people and locations who have sold water without apparently any care for what that will do for the cohesion and uh, of the communities that but those people live in. It is a sale of, of willing sellers though obviously and uh, I'll, 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 we'll put that issue aside and I understand the concerns there. What about the, the, the big ticket item, the $27 million up for sale in the, in the Namoy? What do you think is driving that? Is it because we've seen some coastal licences cut back, 
maybe uh, some of the people in the Namoy fear that they, they'll see some other licenses cut back in the north, maybe floodplain harvesting license allowances cut back. Is maybe that driving it, or is it just because it's wet and people think it's a good time to sell when there's a bit of rain around? Oh, I'm not going to speculate on the reasons that individuals might be um, be choosing to sell their, go- their water to the government, to the environment. Um, it could be any or all of the above. Many, many, many reasons why people decide to sell their water to the government. Uh, but you haven't had any sort of, I guess what I'm saying is you haven't had any sort of groundswell from that area or concerns raised with you at Irrigators Council about, um, you know, the direction. Uh, no, not out of that part of the um, the basin. Obviously, um, the wine grape growing industry is in a fair amount of pain at the moment, so we are well aware that there will be farmers probably selling under, under duress. You might say they're willing, but what they're willing to do is to sell their water to the government and get paid above market rates to help them get out of some fairly deep financial holes, and we understand that that distress is there. Uh, we haven't had any of that kind of feedback out of the um, the Northern Basin Valley. So, as I said, I can't speculate mm. on why an individual would decide to do this. Uh, we're just very aware that while individuals benefit from selling their water to the government and getting usually a much higher than market price... Which is their the right, they, they're entitled is, to. But yep. it is the communities who get left behind. They're the ones that deal with changes in production, loss of jobs, and then the attendant further population decline that then becomes this, you know, they lose kids at the school, the school gets fewer students with then fewer teachers, you, you know, have less income being spent in the local shops, that community is less able to withstand drought when it comes around because there's fewer people trying to sustain production through that time. It just becomes an absolute um, you know, rolling ball of consequences. And just quickly, because we have to go to the news headlines, but uh, what, uh, where to next on this debate and where are you going to take up this issue next with government? Well, we're obviously keen to um, see, get more information about what actually matters here. We want to know how much is the government um, paid per megalitre, what types of entitlements they are, um, where they are, which location and uh, the total megalitres bought. As I say, then we can start to work out whether the government is in fact getting value for money and is in fact adhering to its own guidelines for environmental utility of that water. Claire Miller, thanks for your time on the program today. No worries, thank you. New South Wales Irrigators CEO Claire Miller there on the program uh, responding to that news about uh, that tender information that's been published. 33 tenders being published on the government website to buy 43.3 megalitres of water to complete part of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan's Bridging the Gap target. It's uh, coming up to 28 minutes to one. Shortly we'll have some uh, details from the Weather Bureau, but before we do that... Let's get some news headlines from Adam Story. Good afternoon. Afternoon, Michael. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. A Sydney vet uh, is being praised today for helping save the life of a woman who was attacked by a shark while swimming in uh, Sydney Harbour at Elizabeth Bay. Elizabeth Bay, I know. Yeah. Incredible. He, uh, he lived in a building um, just off the bay and heard all the commotion and uh, rushed down and was able to... Uh, uh, Get a uh, tourniquet on, yeah, to a lower uh, right leg. Uh, and other people were rushing down with towels and whatnot, so luckily there were people around uh, at the time. Mm. Uh, so it could have been a very different... Uh, Quite incredible, isn't it? Very different outcome. So we were just uh, thinking of the last attack in Sydney Harbour. We went back to 2009, 
where it was actually in the harbour. Mm. Yeah. So. And there was that also that famous one at Shark Bay where yeah. the, the woman died because they couldn't get the ambulance up. That's that right. That was years ago. That was you know decades yeah. ago. And mm. then there was a, a famous one in uh, I don't think it was fatal Parramatta River. Mm. Uh, they That's found, right. Yeah. 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 Took a chunk out of his paddleboard. <laughs> <laughs> but Elizabeth Bay. I, don't know. I know. Yeah. Quite. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, you it's know, it's such a busy part of the harbour. You wouldn't think too. sharks could afford to live there. Boom, <laughs> 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 boom. A very, a very expensive part of the harbour to be swimming. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. I like that. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, speaking of which, uh, property researchers say the market has entered a cycle where renters are reluctant to vacate, I don't know, because of the. Uh, uh, what is being charged, but because of also vacancy rates, that uh, the vacancy rate for rentals is 1.1%. There's not many options out there uh, if you are a renter at the moment. Uh, the US Secretary of State says the White House response to the drone attack which killed three US troops in Jordan could take a number of forms and be sustained over, over time. And there's suggestions today that uh, the US defences had actually picked up this drone, but they thought it was one of their own because mm. they were doing drone manoeuvres. And because they thought it was one of their own, they failed to shoot it down, mm. and it hit its intended. They sort of followed target. it in, apparently. That's what yeah, they, yeah, yeah. They sort of tailgated the other one. Yeah. So yeah, big inquiries into that. Uh, retail turnover is down two point seven percent in December. That's the latest data from the Bureau of Statistics. After economists expected a mild one percent drop, it also follows uh, a one point six percent increase in November, which was those um, Black Friday sales mm. and, and all that sort of business. And the state government's launched a new anti-vaping campaign to try to reduce the number of young people using e-cigarettes. Uh, it will feature testimonials from teenagers and young adults who've experienced adverse health outcomes due to vaping. And they'll start airing on TV and social media from today. And there are some horror stories. There, there are apparently. some horror stories yeah. about mm. uh, what vapes can mm. do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And they are—they are everywhere. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they are. That's right. <laughs> and they say they don't have uh, yeah. um, nicotine in them, but a lot of them do. A lot of them do. They yeah. don't. And ah, oh, yeah. Oh, it's, the it's black a, market is alive and well in yeah. uh, that regard. That's right, indeed. Yeah. All right. Thanks for that, Adam. Okay. You'll be back at one o'clock with some more news information, and uh, let's find out what talking about information. Let's find out what's happening with the weather details. And Gabriel Woodhouse at the Bureau. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. So we so, I was just going to hear actually from someone in Lightning Ridge who got a couple of hundred millimetres in town and a couple of hundred millimetres on the station nearby. So um, would that be the, the wettest part of the state or there was that system moved through quite a large area, didn't it? Look, there was a, a number of storms and, and high rainfall totals right along um, the very far northern parts of New South Wales yesterday. And in terms of what we can see in our um, gauge system, Lightning Ridge was a standout with 86 millimetres of rainfall in the 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning. But uh, since 9 o'clock, we've seen a few showers up around the um, northern rivers where right along the Queensland borders where we've seen some of the higher falls and seen, you know, Cashy Creek more than 40 millimetres, Numanbar 49 millimetres and at the Upper Roost River, 77 millimetres of rainfall. So so there are still a number of showers um, falling right across the northeast quarter of New South Wales and through the day today we're expecting more thunderstorms to develop and the risk of those locally heavier falls and um, some of those storms to become severe. Right, okay, and st- severe over the next... I mean, I noticed that you pull back on some of those warnings uh, from the Bureau at the moment, but they could ramp up again? 
Look, those warnings have shifted a bit further north because the bulk of the rainfall is falling a little bit further north through through Queensland where we still have a fairly broad uh, flood watch and a number of warnings in place um, uh, in that area of the world. But for northern New South Wales, we are still expecting some showers and some storms. And what we'll be seeing is those localised heavy falls with um, thunderstorms. So this afternoon, we could be seeing uh, thunderstorm warnings being issued, particularly across parts of the northwest slopes and plains and up towards uh, the northern parts of the central west slopes and plains as well. So uh, with that, the main risk is going to be those locally heavy falls um, that can lead to flash flooding. So similar to what we saw yesterday, some of those falls in excess of you know, 40 or 50 millimetres fall over the space of half an hour or an hour. And what's likely to happen in the next few days then? Is it drying up a bit? Yeah, a, a little bit. So tomorrow we're still looking at thunderstorms um, uh, across a fairly broad area of New South Wales. So uh, across most of the western slopes and plains and ranges um, is where we're looking at storms for tomorrow. Um, we could see some localised moderate falls with some of those storms, but um, it looks as they'll be a little bit less active than what we're expecting today. And then through the remainder of the week and into the weekend, um, we'll see a couple of showers near the coast, but they'll be few and far between with not much on the cards. Instead, uh, across western New South Wales and particularly across the, the western plains, we'll see temperatures creep up. So um, whilst it is warm um, today and tomorrow, um, temperatures are going to peak, um, particularly on Friday and again on Sunday, um, and Sunday being the hottest out of, out of the coming week. So some warm conditions and some dry conditions developing across uh, inland New South Wales. OK, uh, well, probably some people would uh, be uh, keen to see that. All right, thanks for your, thanks for your time. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Gabrielle Woodhouse at the Bureau there. It's 22 minutes to one. Well, uh, talking about the rain, uh, let's uh, head to Lightning Ridge now. It's the town centre there. It's been inundated with significant rainfall, uh, but it's been a bit of a different story for farmers too, with uh, some people missing out and others getting up to and over 200 millimetres of rainfall at Carinia Station just outside of Lightning Ridge. Jacinda Barry saw 180 millimetres in her gauge. She told Lara Webster that the rain has seen the dams overflow and they haven't been full for 12 years. Yeah, no, the dams are full. The uh, The main road in front of our place is washed away. I'm actually stuck in town. Um, yeah, the dams are full. There's going to be grass galore in the coming weeks. And um, just send your thoughts and prayers to my husband and my other little boy who are stuck at home without Starlink. Just in the um, 180 millimetres, let's just... Talk about how long it's been since you've seen a drop like that. Oh, look, it was February 2020, which was, I guess, we were on our way to Tassie uh, for on a cruise, which was the beginning of COVID. And I remember we had farm sitters at the time and they were looking at the kitchen window and couldn't even see halfway to the shearing shed. So we actually missed the last big rainfall, rain event like that. But yeah, 2020 for, for a rain event like that. Before you did get this rain, what were things looking like at your place? Look, we were really lucky. We did get a, a, a very significant rainfall event back in November. Um, so that was that rainfall in November for us was an absolute game changer. Um, Joe's parents down the road, you would have seen them on the land. I think they got 300 mils or something crazy like that. Um, so this, this rain event for us really just shores it up shores our season up for us. Mm. Um, the, dam, the, dams, the dams have not been full since 2012 for us. So we've had 12 years 
of dams that are not full. So if it wasn't for bore water in the Great Artesian Basin, we wouldn't have had water. We're going to put in a crop this year. It means the cattle are going to have feed. The cattle are going to be fat and happy. And as long as the prices keep doing as they're supposed to and continue on the uphill trend, it, it, it's wonderful. And it just adds so much more positivity. But at the same time, it is it is very much a double-edged sword. Like There's so many businesses and homes in Lightning Ridge that have been damaged and they've lost so much. And then so many farmers, like I saw a post uh, on our Facebook post, a comment going, 30k southwest and we got 10 mils. That, that's quite heartbreaking and it, and, it's, and, it, and it makes me feel sad for them. Yeah, it is, as you say, that double-edged sword and, and often more miss out than get these sort of isolated falls. I mean, what are you hearing from other neighbours? Were there other lucky ones or, or were you one of the few? Oh, very patchy. I mean, up around uh, Engledill, again, patchy. Like in, on one property at the house, when I was talking to them at lunchtime yesterday, the house was up to 90 mils, but their machinery shed uh, four or five k's away, uh, 200 mils. Like just, we're like, and she's like, what? Are you, are you sure? Like it's, it was it's just mind-boggling. And of course, you've got a farm stay as well, Jacinda. Did, did you have any guests staying while you, you saw this downpour? No, usually we close over summer, thankfully. Um, I just, yeah, it's just too hot generally through summer. But that was the main reason for my post. I was inundated with text messages and Facebook messages going, oh, my goodness, are you okay? We've seen that Lightning Ridge has... And I just could not get back to everyone. And I'm like, right, this is the best way to let everyone know we're okay. Lightning Ridge people are struggling. Um, and that's when I saw that, yeah, there was there was quite a few farmers not far away that had not completely missed out, but particularly when you go, oh, really? 10 mils in the gauge. Yeah, and it's, it's just all... I know exactly how they feel. It's awful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, now Jacinda, tell me, how is uh, the Lightning Ridge town faring? As you mentioned, we have seen some, some stores there inundated, some streets and homes. What are you hearing and what are you seeing in town at the moment? Well, a rumour I've heard is that the bowling club has probably got close to half a million dollars worth of damage. Um, I, I've been, and we were actually in a cafe yesterday morning um, filling in time and I got a notification on my phone that they were closing and I turned around and I'm like, really? The Busy Bee's closing? How come? And they're like, yeah, no, our kitchen's full of water. I'm like, oh, fair. Um, there's just lots of cleaning up and mopping up to do. Um, community people here are really getting behind business owners, which is wonderful. I'll head down shortly and see what um, needs to be done because I've got not, nothing else to do with my time. So I'll scoot across and help out my favourite coffee makers and um, do that. So that, that's really nice to see. And the SES and the Fireys do a fabulous job, as always. Um, and it, it's just it's small towns. That's what they do. Jacinda Barry from Carinia Station, which is near Lightning Ridge, which is where she's stuck at the moment. She was uh, speaking there to Lara Webster. It's 17 to 1. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. And more on that story we heard about yesterday about the trial currently underway with the New South Wales Rural Fire Service in which they do not have to register a vehicle if it's being used to fight a bushfire. Farmers can now travel up to 100 kilometres from home using public roads in these vehicles. It's been described as an effort to create more cooperation between individual farmers and the fire service. Stuart Johnson's from Karawana, west of Wagga Wagga. He has some thoughts about this and he says more detail needs to be worked out. The RFS are always saying go for the truck first, which is the important thing for safety side of things for crew members. Um, the little 
tanker trailer units are great as a mop-up and a backup when you're running out of water with your main truck. But the safety side of things with people getting burnt and people hopping on the back of vehicles, they're not really protected. Young, I think it was Heffernan, got burnt over at Tunee in 2000, and that was the example, and that was sort of why the RFS actually probably went away from them a bit, because of the safety factor. They are really handy, and a lot of blokes use them for the permit burns uh, around the properties, which are getting less and less now with conservation farming. But just the, the safety fire, in fact, and a lot of people go, oh, well, the unit on and I'll head across to the fire. And they expect somebody else to get the truck, and sometimes the truck is not got. That's the big safety thing is get the truck first. Do you, you know? think there could be, if this is managed properly, do you think there could be benefits to this new way of thinking, oh, or do you think... Yes. Yeah? They're, 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 they used it years ago, and it was really good. Where it probably will fall down is there's less and less numbers on farms, and the farms have got bigger. Um, but in saying that, most farms now have got their own truck um, or some type of firefighting apparatus that's reasonable size and holds a fair few thousand litres of water because you're talking just with the machinery value, let alone the land value and the crop value, big dollars. So they want it out as soon as possible because they don't want to lose their header. They don't want to lose their tractors or trucks. That's why a lot of these big farms have got their own units and they follow the headers round when they're harvesting, which is a good thing. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's really good to have those units there because the more trucks you can send to a fire, even if it's only small, I'd rather have more trucks going to a fire than not enough. The tanker trailer units are good as a mop-up and a little backup unit. And for small fires, they are good because they get there quick. And a lot of times that doesn't that stops them from turning into a major fire. So you sound as though you've got a fair amount of experience in this. What input would you like to see given back to this trial? Are you hearing many people saying that they're going to take advantage of the, this as a thought? I didn't know anything about the trial, uh, to be perfectly honest. Uh, a lot of people have their own views, like I do, and some uh, self-indulgent, I suppose, but... It's the safety thing, and basically, if you get a fire put out and nobody gets hurt, nobody gets, and you don't lose too much country getting burnt, that that can only be a good thing. The, the other uh, thing I'd be intrigued is what implications this would have for people's insurance. That's exactly right. Um, there's the Good Samaritan Act with the RFS. Um, you know, if you turn up to a car accident and help somebody out, or, or the same with the um, first aid, the Good Samaritan Act protects you there. If somebody gets hurt, like young Heffernan did there a few years ago, I think the RFS did step up there. It's a real legal minefield, and I don't like to say it, but insurance companies do like to try and get out of something if they can, and that's the unfortunate bit about it is it's all well and good why something is going along really well, but if somebody gets hurt or worse, killed, what's going to be the outcome of that? That's the scary bit about it, and, look, that goes for any fire that starts like today, um, with a bit of wind and a bit of heat behind it, it turns into a nasty fire very fast. It sounds to me as though it's possibly, from your perspective, it's possibly a good idea, but more consultation and a bit more thought needs to go into this? Yeah, yeah. And look, people have got to want to do the right thing, to have the good intention to do the right thing by this act. It's easy to blame somebody in hindsight, but most people are only trying to do the best when they turn up. 
Stuart Johnston from Karawana, west of Wagga Wagga, talking about that RFS trial. Uh, 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 unregistered vehicles can travel up to 100 kilometres to help out with fires. It's uh, 12 minutes to one. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, it's been a busy time in the wine world with grape growers in the Sunraysia region on the border of Victoria and New South Wales, gearing up for an early vintage this year, but smaller yields and dwindling, dwindling demand, they're making it pretty tough and pretty tough for the season ahead. Chris Dent is a Swan Hill grape grower and chair of the Murray Valley Wine Growers Association and says conditions have not been ideal. They're looking okay would be a generalised statement. You know, we've had some some interesting weather, for lack of a better term, uh, with some rain and um, overcast and humid conditions over that crispy New Year period. We're hearing that some some grapes have got a little bit of disease, mainly sort of bunch rot, um, and also a little bit of powdery mildew showing its head now. So not ideal conditions, but, um, you know, the timing of it wasn't the worst that it could be. As we get closer to harvest, and some people have already started now, that's when we really don't want the rains. Uh, but, hey, we don't get to, to choose that. Mother Nature dishes it up and we have to, have to adapt and overcome. Does that mean some growers are actually ex- experiencing an earlier ripening season? Yeah, compared to the last two years, Anyway, probably more. Uh, last two years, definitely, um, we are much earlier. That's the general feel there that the crops are light to average at best. And, uh, yeah, we're certainly seeing on the white side of things, we have seen a fair bit of activity, you know, even on that spot market side. Um, wineries looking for a bit of extra fruit, which is, which is good. So, you know, if we can make the most of the good bits, uh, it might just ease the, the, the pain of the bad bits and then economics comes into it too and as we started this season we, we the writing was on the wall that it was going to be a challenging year economically um, with low demand and, and likely low prices. Are prices, particularly for reds, are they still under the cost of production? Yep, for most of the, the reds, like they're sort of thrown all into the one bucket bar a few little pockets of sunshine um, and yeah, no, the, the price the prices that have been released uh, are certainly below the cost of production. Um, and, you know, on top of that, even growers with contracts are being asked to grow less or deliver less to the winery uh, because the winery simply doesn't need it. And there's absolutely no market out there for, for spot purchases. So if anyone has read and doesn't have a, a contract, it's really looking unlikely that those grapes are going to get sold this year. Chris Dent is the Murray Valley Wine Growers Chair. He was speaking here with, there with Faith Tabulu Yarn. And uh, meanwhile, that harvest is well underway at Duxton, which is the Murray Valley's largest wine grape producer with uh, 2,500 hectares under cultivation, which is about 6% of Australia's total wine grape production. Duxton Vineyards General Manager Wayne Ellis says they're expecting a small but good quality crop. It's our first night of pick tonight. So at Euston we're picking Pinot Gris up here. We're picking Pinot Gris and Chardonnay on our town farms, um, which will start delivering to our um, Duxton Bronga Winery at midnight tonight. 
So from 6pm roughly tonight, we'll be in full swing. And what's the yield and quality like this year? Uh, yield's still a little bit down because we had uh, the flood and disease impact from last year. So down in Mildew, definitely the vines look healthy, but the yields are a little bit down. But the wine quality is exceptional. So we're going to look at high wine. The yield will be below average for us, uh, and that's a recovery from last year's season. Duxton Vineyards General Manager Wayne Ellis speaking there with Elsie Kennedy. And uh, the Murray Valley, there's, uh, they're on the list for some of those tenders that are uh, up for grabs. Uh, and on that issue, Raymond's texted in saying the water buyback scheme is, in his view, a correction to a thieves' market. Water's a government service that has no business being privatised. And uh, he says that uh, he, you hear these commentators trying to turn every transaction into a, some form of market, says Raymond. It's uh, time for markets. First up, let's go to Wodonga Cattle. Good afternoon. In a sale reminiscent of the previous auction, feedlots once again played a pivotal role over the 2,400 cattle, setting the overall tone and driving prices to higher levels in pursuit of numbers. Notably, exceptional lines of vendor-bred steers gained premium prices, attracting strong interest from feedlots. Trade buyers, however, found themselves mostly relegated to the sidelines, as only a few domestic processors showed willingness to participate in the market. Feeder steers experienced a lift of 15 cents, with median weights fetching 290 to 362. Trade steers, although limited, traded at 322 to 344. The demand for grass finished trade heifers in the the 400 to 500 kilo range intensified, leading prices to jump 30 cents. The heifers ranged in price from $3 to $3.36. Medium weight feeder heifers also saw a 20 cent improvement with the highest bid reaching $3.36. During the export sale, a big group of buyers stood at the rail and competition was strong, forcing prices up by 40 cents and more in instances. The bulk of these sales within a range of 290 to 336 in the cow sale a significant influx of buyers vied for well-finished heavy cows propelling prices 11 cents higher heavy cows 270 to 290 good quality bulls range from 240 to 359 on leanne ducks for mla to forbes sheep and lambs Good afternoon. Numbers eased slightly with agents yarding 26,000 head. There were 17,500 lambs penned and quality continues to be very mixed with both well-finished and plainer lambs yarded. There was extra buyers present competing in a firm but dearer market, particularly on the better type lambs. Trade weight lambs were firmed to $4 dearer, the 18 to 24 kilo portion selling from 135 to $181 a head. Heavy lambs, 24 to 26 kilos, ranged in price from 190 to 215. Extra heavyweight lambs held steady with fewer yarded, with prices ranging from 203 to a top of $248 a head. Carcass prices averaged from 760 to 800 cents a kilo. The best heavy hoggets reached 155, and the balance of the lambs and eight and a half thousand head of mutton are still to be sold. This has been Crystal Ridley at Forbes from LA. Carcor cattle, Angus Williams. Numbers fell by 400 for a yarn of 2,300, mostly good quality cattle. There were good numbers of young cattle to suit feeders and restockers, and heavy grown cattle were well supplied. Most of the regular buyers were present. 
Young cattle to the trade were 20 cents dearer. Steers to the processors sold from 2.96 to 3.30, and heifers 2.42 to 3.36. Feeder steers were up to 8 cents dearer, selling from 300 to 3.78, while feeder heifers were up to 22 cents dearer, 2.42 to 3.41. Young cattle to the restockers were dearer, with steers selling from 200 to 4.12, and heifers 180 to 3.30. Prime grown steers up to 15 dearer. 260 to 329, and prime grown heifers also 15 dearer, 255 to 322. Two and three score cows up to 15 cents dearer, selling from 160 to 265, while prime grown heavyweight cows were 17 dearer, 240 to 297. Bulls sold to, sold to 240. This has been Angus Williams for MLA at CTLX. Canada cattle now. Good afternoon. There was a much smaller price gap on a wider weight range in the good quality yearling feeder steers where a reduced penning of 1,950 head were yarded. A fairly mixed quality penning with heavyweight yearlings were represented. The full field of buyers operated in a market that continued its recent upward trajectory, particularly steers with the potential to carry plenty of weight out the other side, while cows continued to improve. Vila steers to restockers sold from 370 to 400 cents a kilo, medium weight yearling steers to feed. 328 to 380, heavyweight feeders 350 to 384. Those carrying a bit more condition saw little change. Firm to a shade dearer, the medium and heavyweight heavy yearlings to feed 316 to 340 and 284 to 338 cents respectively. Heavy grown steers to process were slightly dearer, 294 to 324. Improvement again in the cow market with heavy three and four scores as much as 12 cents dearer. They sold from 236 to 280 cents a kilo. James Armitage for MLA in Canada. In cattle. Quality and weight improved at Inverell with 1,333 head. Significant demand for heavy feeders, both steers and heifers. Backgrounders and feeders competed strongly. Light steers to restockers much dearer, 300 to 398. Feeders 17 cents better, 328 to 398. Medium feeders 9 cents better, 316 to 377. Heavy feeder steers 16 cents a kilo dearer, 322 to 328. Similar weights to process 310 to 321. Plain drafts of restocker heifers back 5 cents, 284 to 386. Medium feeders up to up 13, 316 to 336. Heavy feeder heifers significantly dearer at 319. Cows up 20 cents a kilo. Heavy cows, 283 cents a kilo. Stephen Adams, MLA at Inverell. Scone cattle now. Numbers back by 100 head. The Scone agents yarded 835 cattle. Quality on the whole was good. More weight this week. And at the time of this report, light weaner steers and heifers were scarce. The bulk being yearlings and around 140 cows offered. Medium weight weaner steers holding firm, 310 to 438. The best bee muscle butcher calf over 400 kilos, making 350. Restocker heifer weaners trending dearer by 4 to 14 cents, 314 to 362. Heavyweights to the local butchers, making 330. Medium weight yearling steers to feed, up by 24 cents, 348 to 388, over 400 kilos making to 382. Yearling heifers trending the same way, 276 to 334. Heavy grown heifers made to 280, heavy bullocks to 308, light two score cows, 8 to 34 cents dearer, 180 to 269, heavy three and four scores, 15 cents dearer, 260 to 282. Angus Barlow for MLA at Scone. And that's the market information for today. You've been listening to the New South Wales Country Hour. We're heading up to news time and one o'clock. 